Hi, welcome to Faith in the Folds, a podcast for ministry, biblical studies, and Christian living. I'm your host, Kevin Burr. Today on the podcast, we have a very special guest, a friend of mine for the last 13 years, Dr. Everett Hufford, who's a church equipping facilitator for Missions Resource Network, church consultant as one of the partners for Hope Network, and professor emeritus of missiology and spiritual leadership at Harding School of Theology in Memphis, Tennessee. Everett, welcome to the podcast today, sir. Thank you. It's great to be with you. Good to have you with us. Uh, Dr. Hufford, one of the very first things that I remember hearing about you when I landed at Harding School of Theology back in 2010, now 13 years ago, where has that time gone, was that um, you knew Arabic. That was one of the first things I had heard about you, that you knew Arabic. It's like, wow, that's cool, because at, I think Arabic is kind of hard to learn. And then I gradually began to hear more and more about, oh, yeah, he also grew up in that part of the world, and he also did this, and he also did that. And then I started working for you, editing the uh, the handbook that you give people on your excellent tours to uh, Israel and other places in the Middle East. Um, my wife and I took that tour in 2014. Still think about it to this day. It was, del- it was an absolute delight. We had a great time. And then... I um I you know have been keeping up with your work since then and uh, your experience there in Israel and Palestine and uh, that uh, that part of the world and the majority world has become increasingly relevant the last uh, last several months in particular before we actually get to some current events though talk to us about your work growing up in uh, in the city no spoilers for me, growing up in the city where you grew up and how that formed your experiences, kind of help us get to know you, and then we'll dive into some of the more current things. I do have fond memories of you coming to campus, and (laughs) uh, I did appreciate you being a graduate assistant because during those 15 years that I was VP Dean, uh, the graduate assistant was really vital, I think, to my survival. So. You, you did a great job as well as the work you did with the Student Association. So I appreciate that. I want, we, we would always joke, uh, you particularly, so I never felt bad about joking like this because you started it. <laughs> you would remind me when you were vice president and dean on campus for my last year and a half there at HST, you would remind me that as SA president, as student body president, I was the only president on campus. <laughs> so... <laughs> I had a chance to tell uh, tell Mark Powell that the other day, and he got a chuckle uh-huh. out of that too. Um, so anyway, but yeah, hey, thank you for the okay. kind words. I should have you on the podcast more often. Uh, yeah, I wonder. <laughs> that... Oh no, anytime. <laughs> uh, my experience uh, with the Middle East started actually. I was thinking about it this morning. Sixty years ago, sixty years ago, and four months when my parents moved to Jerusalem, Jordan. This was. Between 1948 and 1967, Jerusalem was divided, Mm -hmm. and uh, East Jerusalem was a part of the West Bank, and that's today the occupied territories Mm -hmm. of the uh, Palestinians. And we lived on the north side of Mount Scopus, had an apartment there, and then my sister and I went to, uh, she went to a girl's school, I went to a boy's school in Ramallah 
which is now the capital of the Palestinian authorities. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, I learned Arabic, but not because I like foreign languages, because it was a survival reality. <laughs> yeah. I was the only American in an Arab boys' school through high school. Wow. And uh, you, you have to learn a lot fast. Uh, some of the Arabic I could not uh, repeat. <laughs> and... Uh, and it's interesting today, I go back, you know, we've taken probably 1,500 people on tours there. And every time I'm back, we're back every year. And it's amazing to me how it comes back to me. <laughs> but I jokingly say, it's as if I have Alzheimer's because my accent's really good, but I don't remember the words a lot of times. <laughs> so it really confuses people when they hear me say phrases and they think, boom, I should know it better. But anyway, yeah, it, it is a blessing for anybody to learn a second or third language. Uh, I am bicultural though, because of that. And that has uh, certainly blessed me in a lot of ways. Uh, we, my mother and dad uh, worked in Jerusalem seven years, three years in Beirut and three years in Oman. I was with them only for four years uh, in Jerusalem and we were evacuated during the six day war. Mm -hmm. So we came back in 67. I went to Lubbock Christian at that time and then Harding and School of Theology in Memphis. Then after Eileen and I got married, uh, we moved back to Nazareth, Israel, and worked there for five years with an Arab congregation. And we also had a Christian high school that we worked with in Elaboon, which is a village uh, halfway between uh, Nazareth and the Sea of Galilee. Okay. So that that launched my um, my career, my life uh, in uh, what at the time I felt like was going to be more along the lines of, of disciple making among Muslims, but life didn't go down that path as like I had intended. That's why even I did my PhD in intercultural studies at Fuller. Mm -hmm. on the Muslim Christian encounter, again, thinking that's where it was going to go, but uh, getting uh, a teaching position unexpectedly at Pepperdine and then at Harding uh, sent me down a very different path, but it kept my interest in those areas, yeah. and I've stayed fairly connected to it over these years. Yeah. Um, tell us, uh, when you when you came back to the U.S. Um, to to start teaching, so after you left Nazareth, um, what what were maybe some takeaways from there? Uh, what or what maybe? If, let's start off with what was some of the what was one of the first things that you could say that you know that Americans who have never traveled particularly to a place like Nazareth, um, you know, what is that church even like? I mean. I, my wife and I have been there. We worshiped there with, the, with the, you know, with the church there on a Sunday, you know, back in 2014. Um, but for other folks who might not be able to get over there, what, what is that church like? What what kinds of things would it be helpful for you know the average uh, Christian here in the U.S. to know about churches, uh, maybe particularly churches of Christ there in that part of the world? Yeah, most of our um, our growth of churches in our context, at, at least in the up to the '60s and '70s, 
were typically among people who had a real uh, had some Christian background and sort of wanted to know perfect want to know more perfectly the way of the Lord kind of yeah. thing. Yeah, uh, we presupposed a belief in God, so we never had to make any defense of who God is. Mm -hmm. It was a matter of just what do you need to do to be saved. Whereas if in the Middle East you've got a much different foundation that is needs to be laid or that's laid that's actually to your advantage that you may ignore. Most of the believers in the church in Nazareth came from a Greek Orthodox background, but they became um, just secular, basically. But they did have that uh, previous, at least, faithfulness, but it was too more of a tradition than it was to the word. Understood. And so any, any discussion Discoveries that they make in the word that there was a, a respect for the Bible, but no knowledge of it. Mm. And so they they were drawn. The people initially, the church were drawn to a study of the word, um, which at that time, you know, earlier years, it was only the priests that had any kind of exposure to that. And yeah. then what they did get was mainly a, a liturgy, uh, but not really a study of, of scripture. So that that was a little bit different and then when it came to the muslims and half our students at the high school were muslim uh i at would the christian high school there. yeah at the christian high school oh, okay it was, it was for arabs in galilee yeah it was started because uh israel had a requirement of high school education but they wouldn't provide it in an arab village at the time oh. at, in el Abun. Mm -hmm. so the villagers pleaded with a missionary, uh, Ernie Stewart at that time, to start a high school. And by starting it, and because it was law, Israel had to fund per student to go to the high school. They just wow. wouldn't build the school for them. <laughs> so it's been self-sustaining uh, since the 60s. Yeah. Uh, and then, but it the, the students, Muslim students, went there because they knew of the quality of education. And it, it really was a high quality. Uh, but the Muslims I had in class, uh, you had to start someplace else because they already had some preconceived views of the Bible being corrupted and other things that you get sure. from kind of it, it didn't come from the Quran as much as it did from Muslim traditions. Yeah. Um, and I, I discovered that most of the Muslim students did not learn their faith from preaching or something equivalent to Friday school, Sunday school, yeah. or anything like <laughs> Friday that. Friday school, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. What yeah. they learned about their religion came from their grandmothers. They oh, all lived in extended family situation. It's the grandmothers that passed on the tradition. And many of them would be what we would consider folk Muslims. It was integrated oh, with yeah. a lot of, um, yeah, you know, uh, mystical and uh superstitious worldviews but it had strong attitudes toward against christianity or right. christ or so yeah. on so the starting place in which is what has driven my research in the honor of god for the last 50 years is you've got to start with god that is if we don't have a common foundation in god <laughs> we will whatever we say what you know because christ is the incarnation of this god that we've got to understand God first. And of course, for nine years of my life, I worshiped in Arabic and Sundays. Yeah. And in the Old and New Testament, in every Arabic Bible, God is Allah. 
So I uh, pray to Allah. I was going to ask I about have, this. I have sung, you know, all our songs in honor of Allah. Yeah. So it was, it's something that, um, it, unless we best communicate who God is, then the next step is irrelevant. It, it's going to be a syncretistic, uh, you know, uh, understanding even of Christ, because Christ is more than a prophet. He truly was the incarnation of the mm -hmm. word of God and the very nature of God. And that is something that's not in Islam. And it tries to inoculate people even to that reality. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting that you mentioned folk Islam for people who might not be aware of that. Um, you also defined that too, where you have you have Islam as it's presented in you know in history and in, in its doctrines within the Quran, but there's also a number of traditions outside of the Quran, um, not totally different from say Catholicism. Right, where you, you have a Bible, right? But then you also have a number of traditions outside of the Bible as well. But with um you know, with many Muslims, there is and as you as you put it, right, there is this uh, this mixing, this combination, this syncretism of you know local traditions and things like that. I never knew that until I, I didn't know it to this degree. Um I was in I was in undergrad. At Harding University, there was a history major, took a class on the history of the Middle East with a Dr. Kevin Klein, who I think is uh, oh, yeah. recently retired or um, he, uh, he's, he's still around. He's still around. Um, had a had just had a wonderful time and you know, learned the things like the five pillars of Islam and all that, all that sort of thing. Um, and then in 2008, the summer of 2008, summer after I graduated, I and for the friends did the let's start talking program they went to senegal in west africa which was at 95 percent muslim right and so i was expecting one kind of muslim right i was expecting like a saudi muslim or something like that and when we landed there in senegal i realized oh hey hey this this is very different some of the people who would come to read with us so those of you not familiar with let's start talking it, you teach english using the bible um, using kind of a simplified version of the Gospel of Luke, it uh, it advertises itself as free English lessons using the Bible. So it it there's not a bait and switch. It's it it's 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 upfront about that. Um, we had we had uh, you know some Catholics who came in read with us. We had more people who identified as Muslim, but they couldn't tell you anything about you know what that <laughs> yeah. meant. Right uh, when I was there in Senegal. But I had one lady in particular. She she was fascinating. She said that she had been sick for a while, and um, she would um, if she she tried some doctors, they weren't really helping. And so then she went and you know, found some other wisdom in her village, and she uh, she you know one one person told her to brew some tea, and write some verses of the Quran on a strip of paper and dip that paper. Right with those verses of the Quran into her tea and drink right. that. Someone else told her to um, you know, fill up her bathtub, take a bath, and uh, write certain verses of the Quran on some paper and dip that in the, uh, in the bathtub, and that would help heal her. And as she was telling me this, I was thinking the whole time, I was like, that's, that's just paganism. Like, that's just, that's the kind of thing that, that pagans would do. 
And then she said, after a while, I started to think about that. And I realized, no, 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 I, I believe in God. I, I, I shouldn't be doing these kinds of things. And it was really fascinating to mm -hmm. see her kind of process that through right. there with me because I, I, I was right there with her the whole time. It's like, oh, yeah, like this is right. like I can't imagine telling any Christian, right? Go grab right. John 316 and put that in your coffee. And that's going to help you get better, right? But that's right. essentially what she was doing. Right. Um, so, yeah, that was um, – that. that's that's similar. Uh, or I, I'm surprised, though, Everett, that, that that was your experience because I – the perception is and, – and this is something that we will probably get into. Perception, it, particularly with this Israel-Palestine this Israel -Palestine issue, perception is not equal to reality. And so my perception of you know the typical Muslim in – this part of the world where you grew up, I thought that they would be much more staunch about you know that kind of uh, syncretism. But apparently, that's not the case, though, right? Well, it is for the sheikhs who were trained in Cairo, but okay. it's not true for the populace. So my observation is there is about a similar percentage of Muslims that are really Quranic Muslims as there are New Testament Christians in the Christian world. So for those not for those not watching the video, um, Everett was using air quotes that whole time around <laughs> Quranic and New Testament. So it could like those are the quote unquote conservative Muslims, right? <laughs> yes. Those would be the more uh, rationalistic Muslims who were, you know, well trained. Um and they the, I mean the Sheikhs even in and Israel or even Jordan would have a lot of problems with that, but their mother would not. And so there's this this challenge of, and part of it is just a, a world driven by fear, fear of the evil spirits, fear of being shamed, fear of um, um, uh, infant mortality rates that are mm -hmm. so high. I mean, all the, the same kind of thing that even drove, I think, the the worship of Artemis of the Ephesians. You know, it was yeah. that those were women that filled that theater in Ephesus. Because of those fears, yeah. uh, they it, it's it's hard then to to apply the greatness of God to the realities and suffering of life, which is the link that we see in Jesus, but it's also the link Catholics, that's why many of them went to Mary. Mary is the one who became the link, as it were, to really understand uh, the the realities of being a mother in a very poor world and, you know, that kind of thing. So it's, yeah. I'm empathetic to it. There's actually a place in Israel where, you know, the Greek Orthodox extremely um, syncretistic, and they've got a place there where <laughs> Muslim women will go uh Muslim, Greek Orthodox, and Jewish women will all go seeking to have children if they've had a lot of miscarriages and asking either um, the prophet Elijah or St. George for the El-Khadr, uh, or El-Khadr for the Muslims. And they all have a, a figure that they pray to. At a, There's a mosque and a synagogue nearby and a church all... <laughs> together it, yeah. it's it's really bizarre how you can see that syncretism that, that there's a commonality in their syncretism because of the commonality of of suffering in life or oh, yeah the disappointments in life and you go to the the spirits um 
or you go to those saints seeking protection from evil spirits so you won't lose your child or your child won't right. die before they're two. And the, the, the women over there have uh, the infant mortality, not as much among the Jewish, but it is among the Arab, Muslim, and Christians. Infant mortality right there is about like miscarriage rate among women in the U.S. Mm. So it you can see that. I mean, I'm empathetic toward their sure. their level of suffering. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned um, that you, a Christian, were calling God Allah in Arabic. And I before you before you brought that up, I was going to ask, because um, I, I didn't prompt you for this question, but I know you can handle it. Um, for people who first heard the word Allah, for Christians who first heard the word Allah in the U.S., it might have been around 2001. And right. it was followed by... It, it 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 was in the context of what sounded like a war cry, right? Allahu Akbar. It is. Um, tell us what uh, you know. Why why do why do Christians why would Christians even say call God Allah? Isn't Allah the God of Islam? And aren't those aren't those guys different? Uh, if you want to talk a couple of hours, we can go down that road. <laughs> give uh, give us the. I'll, Give us the I'll, brief send you, I'll send you the link uh, of an article that's published on it uh, where I raised the question, is Allah God? Mm -hmm. um, I think I've read that. I've also read um, Timothy Tennant's yes. discussion. Timothy Tennant, president of Asbury Seminary. Right. Give him a shout out. Good, right. So I, we could uh, provide that link for yeah. anybody who may want it on your podcast. but. It's, it's just really involved. It's as loaded an issue as just talking about the war today yeah. with Hamas because the ones, the only ones I know, but let me put it this way first. I've never met a Muslim that didn't think that Allah was the same as Yahweh and as Theos. Mm -hmm. Never met a Muslim that didn't think it was the same God. Sure. The ones that I know are for sure that it's not the same God are evangelicals in the U.S., yeah. Who have never met a Muslim or had any interaction with yeah. Islam. Yeah. So to to just take uh to assume that a war cry represents a whole theology, especially even the Quran, is probably a very unfair assessment. Mm -hmm. Um as much as to assume that what the Crusaders did in the eleventh uh, century represents what all christians believe or have ever believed sure and uh, i would certainly not want anything of the crusades to represent what i believe as a disciple of christ today so yeah. that that's just a real short version of it right um but i think i mean my short answer is well if you've ever read the bible in uh arabic you'll know allah's god <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah yeah christians who were speaking arabic centuries before yes the uh the development and birth of islam were calling god allah right i mean that's uh that i i can't that, maybe not centuries but you know well what, no what... because centuries before they were byzantine so they would have called him theos oh uh, okay okay they uh i don't know what that arabic at that time the arabic version but by the time islam spread and, you know, it spread mainly um, because of the failure of the Byzantine Empire. Mm -hmm. And and then 
adopted the term of the one God. There, there's a whole discussion of that. Ah, okay. Necco, but uh, historically, I would say they probably any any Arab who became a believer uh, under the Byzantine Empire would have known God as Theos. Interesting. Okay, that is a little bit more nuanced than I had originally thought. I, I had I had thought for a while now that that Arabic speaking Christians um, who lived and worshipped before the uh, before the advent of Islam were referring to God as Allah. Um, yeah, I'll uh, need to re I'll need to look at that more, but I'm I feel like. That has been more since the sixth century, um, but we'll. I, yeah. I would, uh, I'm just guessing on that, but I. Well, and I, I could be, I could be misremembering that as well. Uh, but you are, you are right that you know any any Arabic translation of of the Bible will refer to God as right. as Allah, just like you know in any with any other language, right? They're they're using common words, but you know. You know, the Bible itself will define, you know, the the word of God will show us the character of God and and, so, and and therefore what is meant by, you know, Yahweh or Theos or Allah or, right. you know, any any other any other name, right? Kami in Japanese or something like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Everett, talk to us a little bit about um, kind of how we have gotten to where we are today with um, with the conflict that is still ongoing. Here, time of recording is December twelfth. The um, is about two months ago that there, mm -hmm. there, um, you know, the atrocities occurred there in in Gaza in particular. Uh, help us kind of get to you know walk us through how we got there today, and maybe share with us a little bit some of your perspective on that since you and since you've had so much experience in that part of the world dealing with people of all kinds uh, who find themselves over there. I can only give you know one perspective on this how we got to where we are today or how they got to where they are today mm -hmm. um it's extremely complicated um it, it's not something that you could honestly represent in a soundbite or in a a three-minute uh evening news report yeah and it's um it and and there's so much you know involved in um it, i mean historically that land of palestine has uh always been vulnerable to wars of every major empire uh you know from oh yeah iron age and late bronze age and so on because there's uh it, it's there's the fertility of the land producing olive oil which was more important than uh, crude oil today because it was used for everything <laughs> yeah. and grapes because of wine. So mm -hmm. if you go back to the time of the Philistines supplying that to uh, the Greek world, those resources, I can see why they took that land mm -hmm. uh, all the way to the Roman Empire. They needed Egypt for wheat, but they also needed that land for the oil and the uh, wine that would come out of there. Mm -hmm. So uh, uh not to speak of the the political strategic location of Caesarea to the Eastern Mediterranean. So I mean, you just that that just goes all the way back to yeah. it's just constantly happened. Now, I mean, somebody says, "Well, 
when it comes to the Arab and Jew, that goes back to Ishmael and Isaac. And I'm thinking, uh, if you make that link, then you have found the missing link to evolution. Because <laughs> <laughs> it is. It, it, hardly any Jew even knows what tribe they're from. And that sure. both Jews and Arabs are so, I mean, it, it, it well, yes, it, there is a prophecy that might could be interpreted that way. Um, That's probably not the most helpful way to look at it these days. No, it isn't because it's like that just justifies it and we there's nothing we can do about it because yeah. somehow that's kind of predestined. And I don't think that's the case. I think to this very day, every Arab and Jewish politician are accountable for what they do. Mm -hmm. And uh, that you can't just say that's just justifiable. So given that, you've got multiple uh, tensions going on in the Muslim world between Shia and Sunni. And that shows up in the emergence of Hamas, which are Sunni Muslims who were a breakaway group because they were so radical from the Muslim Brotherhood. Mm -hmm. And then you've got the Shia Muslim in Iran, who obviously have no empathies for uh, Sunni, but because of the breakaway from the Muslim Brotherhood, they've helped support Hamas. Mm. You know, it, here you have Shia supporting a breakaway Sunni group uh, because they have the common enemy of Israel. Mm -hmm. So you, that's just that's just the Muslim world side. Yeah. which also explains the Hezbollah on the north, which are uh, Shia on the north side of Israel in southern Lebanon and somewhat in, um, in Syria. Then within Israel, you've got a whole range of uh, the more radical uh, Zionists who are highly with a high, I'd say a very strong political agenda to to take over the West Bank. And there's 600,000 of them living in what the Palestinians would consider illegal settlements on the West Bank, continuing to take land and push, you know, push them out. Well, as that's continuing to happen, that has heightened the tensions between the Palestinians on the West Bank and the state of Israel. And they were, you know, as I've been over there, we take groups, we go through uh, Samaria, we go to Nablus and so on. But and I was really amazed up until like two years ago or three years ago, how well things were going even in Samaria, because they had kind of come to a, a tolerance, I guess you'd say. Yeah. And as the settlers were trying to push the the local Palestinians, the army played more of a mediator role until a very, uh, very strong hawkish Zionist uh, took, became, was appointed head of the military. And now the military works with the hawks and the settlers. So now that's created this uh, new level of, of tension on the West Bank, which also has created tension in Gaza. So it's, you know, it's not disconnected. It's just, it, it just begins to emerge uh, all the way around that, you know, I've had, you know, so many people ask, you know, knowing my history uh, at that part of the world, and I've seen a number of, I guess, several wars and none of them compare to this, you know, this, this is definitely 
probably some of the worst that's ever happened. I mean, even in the Six Day War, there were only a thousand Israelis killed and twenty thousand Arabs in the Six Day War. Yeah, uh, this is going on and on and on. And it, from what I'm hearing, even yesterday and today from Israeli authorities, it's at least three more weeks uh, of this intensive advance on Gaza. Mm -hmm. And um, and they're in a they're in a tough situation because Hamas um, it, it, there's no justification for what they did how they did it there's a justification for their opposition to the way the Palestinians are treated but their answer is not the right answer to yeah. it and it's not one going to bring peace there's no intention it is just a it is actually a hatred of despair. That there, you know, when there's no hope, you just do stuff that's self-destructive, yeah. and of course, they have cared even less for the Palestinians in Gaza than the Israelis have. Mm -hmm. So I mean, it's uh, all of that. It's just everywhere you look, it gets complicated, you know, and it's a mess. So one of the reasons I I did the uh, article that came out in Christian Chronicle was the kind of resisting the impulse of taking sides i guess is one thing because when people ask me what what should we think about this I, i'm kind of wondering what is motivating you to ask that question are you wanting to take sides like which football team do i, do right, I need yeah. to root for yeah or how do we interpret this uh if you want to understand uh kind of each side they there is some justification on both sides for what they're doing. I, but I'm, I think history is going to say their their answer to it is probably not one that's going to make it any better for the next generations to come. Mm -hmm. And it just continues this cycle of violence that just goes on and on. I mean, there are people been living in refugee camps outside of Bethlehem since 1947. Wow. And when you're living in a refugee camp for two or three generations, that just embeds a uh, hatred or um i i really like the way uh it was expressed in the you know the chronicle ran an article also in a, a podcast of david french's book on divided we fall and it was based on his experience uh as he was in iraq and came back and he realizes he was watching the conflict over there that it's also affecting our own politics here, that yeah. the fight over there is no longer about ideology. It's more about grievances. It's the grievances the Israelis have to Hamas and the Palestinians. It's the grievance the, the Palestinians have to, to the Israelis. I mean, it, it's all, and then they're seeking justification in the court of public opinion. Yeah. And, and, and when you do that, you, you continue at a huge mega level to do what we all do at an individual level. And that is, I judge myself by my intentions. I judge others by their behaviors, mm -hmm. which means my intentions are always good. Right. Now, yeah. I may not execute it well, but I yeah. always have the best intentions. So you can see how the propaganda coming out of both sides is all about, you know, <laughs> they're, their intentions, this, you know, whatever it is, but the behaviors, all it does is continue to fuel the cycle of, of, of grievances. Uh, cause um, imagine 
the the Palestinians are being displaced now in Gaza. I, I doubt they're going to come of that come out of that with a lot of warm and love and appreciation for the Israelis. <laughs> sure. And they and they're growing to really hate Hamas. They have hated it, but they haven't had the power to do anything about it. Yeah. And they're clearly, I mean, there's a lot of interviews coming out where they're blaming the head of Hamas for what's happening to the Palestinians. So it's, you know, they're but these are poor, powerless people. Mm -hmm. um, let, let me make one statement. I'll just, because I know this can go 50 different directions, but if both sides lived up to the, the heritage of their faith, whether it's Islam or Judaism, we would not be in this mess today because deeply rooted in both Islam and certainly within the Torah, there is guidelines of how you treat the other, how you treat your neighbors, how you treat uh, other people who are not like you. And the if they just lived up to that, we'd have a different situation. But all of that is thrown out when uh, you have these grievances and fears and cycle of violence. So what's happened is they've thrown out their faith and they're going to solve their own problem, their own way with power. And it's not, uh, it's not going to produce the right thing. And that's the, and you know, I just see it as the fallenness of humanity. I don't, yeah. I don't see righteous, godly people leading either one, either any of those sides that are in this conflict. So I, I think as a Christian, from a Christian perspective, I don't, I don't want to give in to the impulse of giving up mm -hmm. their days. I, you know, I grieve, I grieve for the, the suffering of people in, in Gaza, West Bank, and in Israel, and in Southern Lebanon. There's so many people who are, who are just like your neighbors and my neighbors who, who are being victims of a fight that they didn't even ask for or don't even want. Yeah. Uh, and they're really powerless. Uh, that's just so many innocent people are suffering as a result of this. Yeah. Everett, as, uh, as, as Christians today um, who are on the other side of the world, um, it's tempting, right, for us to ensure that our team, meaning our political team, uh, gets in power so we can wield uh, that power to do the good that we think ought to be done. Again, going back to what you said about our intentions versus you know people's behaviors. My intentions for wielding state power is always good. Problem is that that in is inevitably an exercise in violence. Um, so if, let's say, and I think you might be on the same page with me here, although correct me if I'm wrong, if wielding state power and violence is probably not the best response for Christians, what then would you recommend Christians do? What, what can we even do in a situation like this? Those of us who live in the U.S. and, uh, and can't, you know, get over there to, you know, enact you know refugee aid or anything like that. I've tried to answer that question myself. I, I really, um, I I go back. If you even take, um, 
if we look at Jesus under the Roman Empire, which was ever bit as brutal as Israel or Hamas, mm. when it comes to the people they were among, that they were controlling or whatever it was, um, I just don't find him taking placards out on the street and condemning the evil of the other side, whatever it was. I, I don't see him. Uh, I see him extremely empathetic. Uh I see him seeing people for who they were, like the Samaritans. They mm -hmm. had every Jew had reason to hate the Samaritans for what they did to desecrate the the temple in Jerusalem right near the time just before the time of Christ. Um, I I do see a responsibility at, at the personal level that we want to show the fruit of the spirit. Uh, we want to show you know, the Micah 6, 8 uh, worldview to anybody we interact with, whether they're Muslim or Jew or anyone else, that uh, we may not agree on a lot of things, but that still doesn't mean we have, we are made in the image of God. We respect humanity. We respect um we, we, we treat people, we see people as Jesus saw people, and and it and it's amazing. You know, read Matthew and see how Jesus, even as Matthew crafts it, had an eye on the other. Mm -hmm. You know, he he fed the multitudes on the Jewish side and the Greek side of Galilee. Right. He you know, in the two feedings. He he was concerned. He used Tyre and Sidon as an example of not everybody's bad in Tyre and Sidon or in Syria. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that there's there's just something that we we should be known as the people who bring peace. And politics doesn't seem to do that very well. And I yeah. think it, it applies even to our own um the, the the hatred and and the the grievances that come out even in our own local politics mm -hmm. uh, cannot reflect a christian worldview that I, i'm you know just seeing this war as well as others and seeing the byproduct of that is making a a, a stronger pacifist i think out of me i i know there are times it's it, there's got to be justification for evil to defend and so on but i think we also create um unfounded justification for violence at times at the state level yeah. and i just don't know that I, I just don't see any any footnote in scripture where it says unless you know yeah. You show the fruit of the spirit unless you have grievances or you <laughs> love your neighbor unless your neighbor actually did something to your house. You know, it's yeah. I, I just don't see that from a Christian worldview, which is totally counter to everything you're seeing. And again, the propaganda of all sides is trying to get us to share their hatred. And that's the one comment I, I, I hope stuck in my statement that. Uh, we, we're not going to participate in someone else's hatred. We can be empathetic, uh, grieve with them, but I think we need to pray that God will intervene in whatever, whatever way possible. Yeah. I, I, it's more can be said, but that's just uh, that's my 
my staff had a really tough question. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, it's tough because, you know, so many of us are able to, to see with, oh, with, with a you know, pretty graphic honesty, the human toll that is, um, that's being paid over there for, for those who, um, who are, you know, letting their, their rage and hatred yeah. uh, on full display as they, as they try to redress these grievances. Yeah. yeah. I, yeah. I've grown weary of the, in the report, they say now the, the following report might be uh, disturbing. It's like, no, it should be disturbing <laughs> for anybody. And it's just, uh, I, I think it's, I mean, when can you think in the last five years, we've seen so much consistent, awful human suffering and the results of war because it's a new day now. They've got, you know, Israel can no longer control what goes out into the world because of social media. Yeah. And uh, they can give a spin on it. They can give their reports, but you also can't uh, deny the suffering that, I mean, just from the weather, you know, even from them or other reporting that's done, uh, it's, it is, it's brutal. And some of the representatives of the IDF have shown empathy for those who are suffering. They're in a really tough place because Hamas has used human shield. It's yeah. Hamas that really needs to be, uh, challenged, condemned, whatever, for the way they have also, they're culpable in this. This wouldn't have happened if they hadn't been used as human shields. So I, you know, again, I feel for IDF and what, what they're having to do. And they've already lost more than a hundred um, soldiers already and in, in what they're doing. It's, it's not easy. Yeah. We need to resist the impulse to give in to our, our, um, Resist the impulse to get caught up in and give in to these um, these lower instincts. We need to resist the impulse to uh, buy into the propaganda, right, and right. say that my team is guiltless or that your team is all to blame and so forth. And we also need to resist the impulse to despair, that we need to have, uh, have a, a dogged hope. And uh, and an earnest uh, earnest prayer life that God will uh, will work through this that God will frustrate the plans of the wicked right right that He will uh, bring to justice those who've committed these atrocities and that uh, that the suffering of those who are are pawns and are powerless in this will actually be alleviated. This is um, yeah it's it's just ugly. And in that ugliness, though, and I, I, I know you've seen this personally um, in a variety of contexts where you've lived and worked and uh, ministered, that within that ugliness, the church has an incredible opportunity to step in and to show precisely what you mentioned earlier, the embodiment of you know, this passage from Micah 6, 8, where, you know, where Jesus where Jesus washes the feet of the man who ends up betraying him and the feet of all the men who end up abandoning him, but still did so anyway, and gave them time and grace to repent and uh, and to come back. Ever 
As we wrap up here, any final parting words? Well, since you mentioned Micah 6, 8, um, I, I guess I kind of wish we could have just spent 30 minutes talking about that, you know. Oh, yeah. How does yeah. that apply to us? Because it's it's interesting to me that, you know, in chapter 6, it, there's this, you know, in the earlier chapters, God's saying, what have I done for you to, you know, be unfaithful to me? And then they come back and say, what have we done? You know, because we've offered all these sacrifices. And if we just double our sacrifices, will that satisfy you? To which God responds, <laughs> I've told you what satisfies me is do justice, love chesed, love kindness, and walk humbly with God. Yeah. And he explains what that justice is in chapter two and three. Chapter two and three is you don't uh, you don't engage in violence. You don't steal from other people and you don't confiscate their land. Mm -hmm. Rather interesting and contemporary <laughs> application yeah. that, yeah. uh, that that's from the prophet Micah to ancient uh, Israel that you've been living these ways. That's not the ways of God. That's not the heart of God. I don't want what your hands give me at the temple. I want your heart reflects of my very nature of being compassionate and merciful yeah. And forgiving and so on. And in a, in a real world, it's extremely hard to do. In fact, I, I honestly, it's impossible to do without Christ living in us. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like that distinction there of, um, you know, God not wanting what we give him with our hands, uh, but wanting our hearts. It is, it is a temptation for us, right? To want to cling to and be possessive of what we think God can give us and what we think God can promise us, right? Mm -hmm. Rather than giving him that which he has always asked for, which is our hearts as well. It seems like that works both ways. Everett, you're right. This is um, this is an incredibly complex uh, discussion where if, if we're going to take uh, – if we're going to do, uh, you know, do our due diligence and uh, and really – have what is a, a fair perspective on this. Um, it is it is ugly and complex, but there. I, I'm glad to hear you say that there is still hope, uh, although you certainly don't shy away, and I think rightly so, to not shy away from the from the darkness and um, and the ugliness that will inevitably ensue until uh, godly people are raised up on on both sides. Ever. Really appreciate your time today, sir. Thank you very much. Thank you. Appreciate what you're doing, Kevin.